Welcome to Evolutions of Astrology. This is Dina DiCastro. On this episode, I welcome astrologer Stephen Forrest. Stephen is the author of several books on astrology, including The Inner Sky, The Changing Sky, The Night Speaks, Skymates Volumes 1 and 2 with his wife Jody Forrest, and Measuring the Night Volumes 1 and 2 with Jeffrey Wolf Green. So I'm here with Stephen Forrest, and uh, thank you so much, Steve, for joining me for the podcast. It's a great pleasure to have you on, and uh, I've been really looking forward to this interview. So welcome. Good. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. It's great to be here with you, Dina. You know, I've been wanting to uh, um, talk to you about really the title of my podcast and, uh, you know, let you know that it's really an homage to the tradition of astrology that I've been trained in, which is, of course, evolutionary astrology. And the show itself is called Evolutions of Astrology. So uh, I guess to start with, I'd like you to just talk a little bit about how uh, you and uh, Jeff Green came up with the set of principles that have guided the development of that branch of astrology. Well, it's uh, kind of a classic case of, uh, I hope this doesn't sound too arrogant, but, you know, great minds on parallel tracks. (laughs) At least I, I can vouch for the parallel tracks. Jeff and I um, both started using the, the term evolutionary astrology in the middle 1980s. Um, we were not aware of each other's work. A uh, gentleman by the name of Ray Merriman, the president of, uh, of the International Society of Astrological Research, uh, actually had published a book uh, under the title Evolutionary Astrology in the late 70s, and neither Jeff nor I were aware of his work. So I, I think it was one of those ideas that was just kind of percolating up in the zeitgeist during the 70s and the 80s. There were a lot of astrologers who were bringing in the idea of uh, spiritual evolution, uh, reincarnation, karma, and using it in the astrological context without even using the term evolutionary astrology. Uh, Stephen Arroyo would probably be the, the, the prince uh, among them. His work was you know, brilliant. Uh, and stood out luminously in the the 1970s when nobody else was really publishing much in that vein. So I I really think it's uh, it's something that was just kind of happening in in the collective. Yeah, and it was a movement away from, um, I guess, what we often refer to as traditional astrology or the old paradigm astrology, which was more oriented towards fate and future prediction kinds of aspects of astrology. Would you say that's that's more or less the case? And oh, then yeah. moving more towards um, us taking control of our own fate and destiny through astrology? Very, very much so. The, the, the traditions, I mean, you, you can, even today, you can still open uh, old probably at least half the books that are published under the general banner of astrology and, and essentially be looking at, uh, if not traditional techniques, at least uh, the traditional assumptions, which are basically that your future can be foretold you know, from the birth chart right. and, that, and that your nature can be described in the birth chart. Well, I, I even find myself as an astrologer always kind of struggling with that uh, description uh, part of astrology and trying not to veer too much into that territory. I think that some of it, um, of course, we, we do tend to use. There are certain descriptive things you can say about each sign and uh, it's a planet's placement in that sign. 
But how, when you do a reading, how to how do you gauge that? How do you navigate that territory of steering away from description and towards uh, more useful ways of interpreting the planets? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a very good question. It really gets right down into the mechanics of evolutionary astrology. Um, I, when I'm introducing uh, astrology to, uh, like I have a client, a new client, who's uh, obviously intelligent, let's say, but has no knowledge of astrology. So I need to say some very basic things uh, as simply as possible to get us going on the right track. And, and I, I will make two observations that I, I juxtapose and try to keep in tension with each other. I, I would say to the person, I've just met you, you've just walked through my door, but I will say a very personal thing about you, and I, I can almost guarantee it is true. You are not the same person you were 10 years ago. You have learned a thing or two, you have wisdom you didn't have 10 years ago, and you have scars to prove it. Yeah. So right away, any system that, that tries to describe you as if you're just sitting there is on shaky ground, and not for philosophical reasons, but for the very practical reasons that, that we demonstrably and obviously evolve and change over time. There's nothing philosophical about that. We can see it. So that's one observation. But then the second one, I say to the person, imagine there's a, there's a shy kid who you know runs away whenever a, a stranger comes into the house. Well, there's a pretty excellent chance that shy kid is going to grow up into an introverted adult. I wouldn't bet my life, I wouldn't bet my house, but you know, it's a, it's a pretty good bet that a shy kid will turn into an introverted adult. I quickly add, an introversion is not a psychiatric disorder. There's nothing wrong with it. So what we have here in these two images is the idea that there's parts of us that change, and there's parts of us that, in fact, are pretty constant. The traditional astrology is, is actually quite good at, at describing and delineating the, the the, the constant parts of our character, but it tends to fall down in describing what I think most of us would agree is the much more interesting and inspiring end of the equation, which is that we're capable of learning and growing. Right. And and that really is the difference um, in those ways of practicing astrology between the old traditional way, which was very descriptive, and then in using this material to help guide somebody towards different or more positive choices for themselves in light of the information that you're giving them. Exactly. So going back, you know, just to your development as an astrologer in particular, what is your history in terms of what drew you to astrology in the first place? What what sparked the interest and mm-hmm. what led you down this path to where you are now? Two things. Uh Palmistry and amateur astronomy. <laughs> it's a funny combination. Yeah. But, um, my, my first memory as a, as a little boy, or among my, my earliest memories, was wanting a telescope. And I had the intention of, of wanting to look at the stars through the telescope. I kind of fancied the Mount Palomar Observatory, that it would appear under my Christmas tree. And I was so young um, that I couldn't express to my parents that I wanted an astronomical telescope, and so they got me a telescope for, for Christmas, or Santa Claus brought one, but it was uh, it was kind of a spyglass, you know? Right. And I remember being kind of disappointed. So I, I was just drawn to that star stuff right right from the beginning. And before I was uh, oh, 12 years old, I, I actually was a pretty serious amateur astronomer. I, I had telescopes and spent a lot of time under the stars working in the 
you know, in the kind of under the scientific paradigm. You know, I was I was in astronomy, not astrology, and that was my hobby as a, as a kid. But then, when I was about thirteen, I met a person whom I perceived as a woman. I, I think she was about sixteen. <laughs> and uh, we were family vacation up in uh, upstate New York at a lake, and a German woman who knew palmistry and uh, taught me the basic symbols. And uh, in your palm, you have a plane of the moon and a finger of Jupiter. And so the, the language of palmistry is actually astrological. And so I, I began to get grounded in, in, in that description of the psyche that was oriented to the planets. And and at the same time, I was doing a lot of astronomical observation. And by the time I was in my late teens, it's like a great train wreck between those <laughs> two features of, of my life. And they, they came together. I was having my tonsils out, actually, literally. I was 17 and, and asked my mom uh, for, a, you know, a, an astrology book. She'd offered to buy me a book, to, you know, as I was recuperating. I said an astrology book, and, and she was okay about that. Mm-hmm. And, and so she got me one, and... I mean, one thing led to the next. I, I just never let go after that. So you had a lot of time to read when you were having your tonsils yeah, out. And, yeah, I had like 10 days or so, and I absorbed a couple of uh, of astrology books, then one a garbage book, and then another <laughs> one by a guy named Joseph Goodovich uh, called Write Your Own Horoscope. It's probably out of print. I mean, it's probably long out of print. But it was uh, it was actually in the tradition. It, you know, here's your character if you have this configuration. But um, it was uh, the cool thing about that book was that he would talk about um, not just, you know, you're a Gemini or a Taurus, but if you have Mercury in Gemini or Taurus or Venus in Aquarius or Pisces. And he went through each of the, each of the planets. And so I was actually able to begin to learn the planets from him. I found myself, uh, here, here's the, the, the problem, Dina. I, I, you know, I was versed in the tradition uh, uh, as, a, as a young man. And I would, I would kind of tell people who they were. I would describe them, you know, as I had learned to describe them. And I, I could see with my own eyes that, that I was wrong a lot. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, nobody likes that. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I began to, to realize that human beings seem to be a lot more flexible than, uh, than the traditional astrology books were, the, were describing them as being. And so basically I... I closed the books and and started paying attention to people. Yeah, and I think that that's a point that most uh, practicing astrologers do come to um, at some time is realizing that paying attention to the client in front of you uh, and what you're seeing with your clients is just as valuable, if not more so in some cases, than what you're learning from the books and what you're reading in the articles, you have to put the two together. Oh, and I agree. I agree totally. We have a. Uh, I shouldn't. I wouldn't name names here because I, you know, I don't want to. Like, I, I want to be able to work in this field, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but there, there's an appalling uh, number of astrologers. Some of them, uh, you know, published and reasonably well known, who who basically don't do much client work. And, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I think that that just breeds serpents because. You know, you can have this idea that's so beautiful and makes so much sense, and you can have historical references for it, and and after a while you believe it. You know, if you're actually working with people, you see, you know, it's a beautiful idea, except that it's wrong. If you never work with people, you never see that. 
Well, I, I agree. And I think it goes back to, um, you know, so many people outside of astrology that are skeptics uh, will kind of point the finger at astrology as being very superstitious. Mm-hmm. And if you aren't, you know, if you are someone that's really not seeing clients and is basically just going off of old data and perhaps research, but not research grounded in experience, then I, I feel like maybe it is falling more into um, the category of superstition yes, in a way. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so I think that that's a little bit dangerous, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, I, what I found in talking to people that are curious about astrology is they really want to know why we believe what we believe about mm-hmm. astrology. <laughs> yes. And it's a I, very good question. Yeah. And so, and I can't really give them that answer unless I have data experience to to tell them about mm-hmm. um you know i can't say well i read it in a book you know yeah, <laughs> it just yeah, doesn't exactly. wash so exactly. uh so i guess you know that leads me to one really prevalent question that comes up a lot um from from non-astrologers or people that are really foreign to that field they always want to know how did we come to assign the meanings that we assign to these particular planets, signs, etc.? How did those develop? And of course, there's a long history behind each of those. Mm. But I guess more succinctly, you know, if we take Venus, for example, was it just that uh, Venus was named Venus? And then we decided that, you know, it had everything to do with all the qualities of the goddess Venus, or how did that work? And so I find myself struggling with, with better and better answers for that question. And I just wondered what your thoughts were on that, the synchronicity between the names and the meanings that we yes, assign to them. Yes. It's a big, complex, and mysterious area, but I start off with a, actually a, a, a very simple answer. Uh, no one knows. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, uh, well, that's astrology. comforting for me, because I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, you join the crowd, and those who claim to know are wrong. Um, astrology is, is uh, in, in the fundamental core of astrology is ancient. Uh, the astrology, uh, it's, it's kind of stylish nowadays to say that astrology, as we presently understand it, dates to the 3rd century B.C. in Greece. In other words, you know, not so ancient. Right. The, the Greeks themselves say that they got it from the Egyptians, um, you know, long before. There aren't really uh, Egyptian records of, uh, of personalized astrology, but when you, you understand the, the culture, the, the, you know, the alignment of the pyramids to the stars, and, you know, there, there's clearly a, an orientation to the heavens in the Egyptian culture, and, and to think they were kind of coldly, neutrally doing science, you know, is fairly dubious given everything else we know about the culture. Right. Um, and ditto for, you know, Stonehenge and, and uh, uh, you know, Teotihuacan in the Mexican culture. And there, there's ancient, ancient astrological traditions. Yes. And uh, nobody really knows where these ideas came from. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it, 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 that's really the bottom line truth. I, I believe that they, they came from the process of observation and um, the correlation of observations of a human nature with, with celestial observations, probably, and, and this is all quite speculative, and I would want to label it clearly that, um, the evidence is that, that the, the first personal applications of astrology tended to be for royalty. 
mm-hmm. you know, for obvious enough reasons, the king is born, you know. And so, um, and, and again, this is something I totally make up, but, uh, uh, you know, a king is born, and, you know, hallelujah, the heavens sing forth, and, and we remember that uh, when this king was born, the moon was setting and Mars was rising. And they pay attention to stuff like that. The, the, the son of the king, the son of the king, you know. So they're, they're noticing this. And they didn't, maybe didn't know what it meant, but, you know, what a dramatic moment. Right. Setting Mars rising. Well, Nowadays we would say, that's Mars on the ascendant opposing mm-hmm. a, a seventh house moon. You know, that would be the modern translation. But let's say they made that observation and they thought it was important, but they didn't know what it meant. And then that king went on to, to be... Uh, um, belligerent, emotional, explosive, you know, passionate, but to the point of, of crazy in his violence. And they say, okay, well, that, that must be what this means then. And a modern astrologer would say, okay, that's one of the things it could mean. You know, there, there's higher possibilities. That would be the heart of evolutionary astrology to go to those higher possibilities. But the simple observation that it could mean a, a very emotional and violent person yeah, so I think you get a few kings like that, and uh, and the tradition starts to gather momentum. You know, if it works once, who knows? If it works twice, you start to take it more seriously. What about five times? Right. Yeah. Well, then even uh, in the Bible, we have Jesus' birth being proclaimed by by the star or a, yeah, a exactly. star and the magi are following to find him so there we also see it associated with with a king of sorts you know or yeah, someone who's exactly. thought of as, as a spiritual king you know as you look at astrology as an evolving discipline it's it really is about this process of data collection observation and and in that sense it is kind of a science yeah I mean, in that sense it is a science you mentioned the magi a moment ago i have Something to say that uh, sure. I can't resist saying because it, it's kind of fun and interesting. You know, we, we, we all, if we, if we grew up in the Christian tradition, we, we, we hear from an early age, they, the, the three wise men uh, followed his star in the East. Mm-hmm. You know, standard language. And like most things that we repeat over and over again, we stop thinking about it. To, for your, your, your listeners to track this, you have to start out by visualizing uh, a map of, of, of the Holy Lands, just, just very crudely. Draw the, draw the Mediterranean, you know, like a, like a big U lying on its side, and, and the Holy Lands are off on the, on the right side, you know, mm-hmm. on the eastern side, at the eastern end of the Mediterranean. Okay, and, and Bethlehem and all that. It wasn't a seacoast town, but it's pretty close to the sea. Sure. You know, Israel is, uh, joins the sea. Okay, well, the, the wise men came from the east, okay, you know, further off to the right, so to speak, on mm-hmm. that map. Right. Maybe they were like Babylonian or something. That, that makes perfect sense. And they're, you know, they followed his star in the east. If you think about that, you know, if, there, if people started out east of where Jesus is, where Jesus was born, and they follow a star in the east, they're going to wind up in China. <laughs> you know, if you follow that. Yeah. So... I mean, nobody really thinks about this, but oh my okay. God, how, how wrong that is. They wind up in China, but they didn't. They followed his star in the east to Bethlehem. So if they weren't like dolphins, these wise <laughs> men, you know, which I think we can rule out, they yeah. weren't in the ocean, then what's going on here? You know, is the Bible wrong? Um, I don't think so. I, I, 
if we know technical astrology, even slightly technical astrology, we would know that that having a planet uh, rising, a planet conjunct the ascendant, makes uh-huh. it really important. Now, I, I think when they say they were following his star in the east, it's it's an obscure and mistranslated technical reference to a chart that they had in which some configuration was on the ascendant. They were, oh. they were following the symbolism of the star in the east. Wow. I, that make sense to you? Yeah, yeah. that really does. That really Isn't does. Isn't it interesting? Yeah. Because when you're looking at the layout of a chart, it's the east is the, the ascendant horizon. Exactly. So, exactly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, it's one fun. of those things that you know, it's like when you, when you hear it, it's like, duh, I guess is the, is the right. Word, you know? Yeah. It, it hit me after I, I'd been an astrologer for many years, and I, I also majored in religion. And I, I just kind of put those two and two together once and said, oh, my God, there's something really interesting here. That is really fascinating, and and I could see where uh, that might potentially be a, a fruitful area for someone to take on in doing some writing or research. That yeah, exactly. Really There's so much speculation about you know what was what was the star. You know, was it a, a conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn? Was it a conjunction of Venus and Mercury? You know, was it a nova, a supernova? There, there are so many different, uh, or, uh, you know, interpretations. Was it simply a supernatural apparition? You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it may have just been an omen in some form of something appearing on the the eastern horizon or the ascendant. Yeah, uh, yeah, one or the other. But if it was the eastern horizon, the wise men would have wound up in China. That, that's, that's right. One thing we can take to the bank. <laughs> right. Well, then you know, I I really wanted to uh, ask you about the article that you wrote for the Mountain Astrologer. This uh, the recent one, August September issue. Yeah. Where you talked about the new solar system. And this has been something that's been on my mind. And then, of course, talking to other astrologers in my circle about the discovery of new objects and mm-hmm. how it is affecting the the discipline of astrology. And you had proposed a model within that article. And, of course, as, as you explicitly stated, you know, welcoming any questions or uh, different voices uh, about that model. But this new model is kind of a tentative a way to look at the new developing solar system. Yes. And, uh, I, you know, I just wanted to talk a little bit about that and particularly how you came to categorize those things, kind of the, the layout of it, the rocky worlds, the gas giants, mm-hmm. and then the trans-Neptunian objects. And how you see yourself applying that in terms of readings and then uh, other types of astrology that you're doing. Yes, okay, that's a, that's a big, broad question, but let me, let me run with it a bit. Let me start off with some real bedrock, simple stuff. Um, if, if, we, uh, if I say to somebody who knows nothing about astrology at all, if I ask them, what is the astrological meaning of the moon? You know, they'll, they'll, they will respond by saying, you know, I, I, I don't know, I, I have no idea. You know, how could I know that? And then, uh, you know, I hope I'll be, my behavior is better than this, but let me imagine I aim a gun at them and said, uh, you know, get creative. <laughs> <laughs> okay, they probably get quite creative under those circumstances, and they start thinking moon and moonlight and night and, oh, let's see, emotional things, subjective things, falling in love, seeing a ghost, having a dream. You see how the, the free associations would arise just from the word moon? Yeah. And... And those free associations that could arise in almost anyone's consciousness, just hearing the word moon, 
are actually the meaning of the moon. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, the sun, the sun disappears for, you know, goes behind the clouds for, for a, a, a week or so, gray weather, everybody's depressed. Then the sun comes out, cheers us up again. Sun is, is one of its meanings is your energy or your vitality. And again, the point is it's pretty obvious just to the senses, you know, mm-hmm. if we think about it. Mars is, uh, you know, the, famously the red planet. And uh, so we think of red. What does red mean? And, you know, passion, blood. Okay, the god of war, symbol of, you know, the, the heat in us. Yeah. That's Mars. So, see, where I'm going with this, and I'm actually not, not too far off from your question, although it might sound as if I am, the, that, that to our ancestors, long, long, long ago, God wasn't trying to make this hard. You know? <laughs> if you read the solar system as you would a poem, you, you learn, and, and the astrology you come up with is actually pretty sound. Now, what has happened in, in the last two and a half centuries or so is, is that through the invention of the telescope, primarily, and, you know, and radio telescopes and a few other things, but, but uh, basically through these technological inventions, we've made our eyes, uh, in the metaphorical sense at least, much more powerful than they ever had been before. So, so we're seeing a lot more deeply into the solar system and a lot more detail. We've discovered Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto. We've discovered this new world, uh, Eris, recently, and on and on, they, you know, the countless asteroids and, and so on. And uh, each of them seems to, I, I, you know, seems to work, seems to have meaning, seems to fit into the astrological paradigm. So I started trying to apply the the, the, basically, the keep it simple, stupid principle, the famous kiss principle. You know, what does the moon mean? What does Mars mean? You know, and just say, duh, and dive in, and, and you're not too far off. And, okay, well, there, there's a, a perception that, that was unavailable to our, our ancestors. And, and it's a, in the article that, to which you referred, I, I said, uh, imagine you're on, the, on the, the deck of a starship a trillion miles above the north pole of the sun. So you're, you're looking down at the solar system, uh, sort of in plan, you might say. Yeah. And you would see, I mean, uh, there, there's four worlds that are all basically rocky and have pretty thin atmospheres, uh, if any at all. Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars. Venus has the heaviest of the atmospheres. Mercury has almost none. And they're all kind of small. They're all rocky cores with, again, relatively thin atmospheres around them. And then we, we, we come to a haze of stone, you know, basically the asteroid belt. And beyond it, four more worlds that are entirely different from the inner ones, that are giant worlds uh, in which the atmospheres are very, very thick. And the gas giants, and these are Jupiter and Saturn and, and uh, Uranus and Neptune. And I don't think anyone looking down from the deck of the starship would have even thought of using the same word to describe the inner planets and the outer ones. They look so completely different. They're different entities. Now, to our ancestors, these were just bright lights in the sky. They didn't know what I've just described. But, you know, now that we've extended our eyes, let's let our poetic hearts catch up with it. That's the basis of, of what that article is about. 
And, you know, I was particularly intrigued by um, the description of Pluto as a shaman character, as yeah. as the object that goes between, it both moves in within Neptune's orbit and then moves back out of it again. Exactly. And so it's the thing that goes between, it's called the trans-Neptunians, <laughs> mm-hmm. and then uh, the gas giants. Yeah, exactly. Um, like out beyond the gas giants, you know, um, deep space, there's a bunch of objects out there and then eventually it just turns into interstellar space. And I think interstellar space, just, you know, universal all around us, is a pretty good astrological metaphor for where you go in deep meditation, mm-hmm. like deep consciousness, before personality or character arises, but down in the primordial layers of our being. You know, that's deep space. And and so the the... The rocky world, the sun, the rocky worlds, the, the gas giants, all are, are kind of a symbol of basically the, the personality. I'll say the ego, but I don't mean it in a bad sense. You know, I just, just our characters, our natures. And then beyond them, you know, this the sense of the infinity of things. And then magical Pluto, which, you know, actually comes in, as you were saying, inside of Neptune for about 20 years of its two-and-a-half-century orbit. So it spends most of its time out there in, the, in, in deep space, consciousness itself, the astral world, whatever you want to call it. Most of its time is out there. But every now and then it comes in and kind of talks to the, talks to the ego or talks to the human family, brings messages from the depth. And of all these objects that are out beyond Neptune, Pluto is the only one, at least that we know of, that does that. The new planet, Eris, um, is, is much further out. So it always stays out there. And there's about another 700 uh, Kuiper Belt objects, is one of the words for them, are trans-Neptunians, basically worlds. They're kind of small, but they're worlds. And, they, and again, they found seven or 800 of them by mm-hmm. now, and they'll, and they'll probably find a lot more. And that's the the challenge um, as an astrologer is uh, the overwhelmia, as I like to call yes. it, of oh, yes. all these new objects. And but yet there have always been the asteroid belt and the asteroids, and knowing that there's hundreds, thousands of those, and you know, so there's this this uh, danger of kind of wanting to throw in the towel and say, well. I don't want to accept any new objects. Or... Yeah, exactly. And that's, that is the de facto position mm-hmm. of an awful lot of astrologers. And it's like an ostrich putting a head in the sand as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, yeah. And, and yet I can understand the, uh, the frustration or the tendency, mm, which, is, yeah. which is to what to do with these new objects. So yeah, I don't know what to do with them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, seriously. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it'll, it'll probably be a couple of centuries before astrologers in general know what to do with them. I just think that we need to we need to face the question. We can't pretend it isn't there. Exactly. The oldest astrological principle goes back to to Egypt. Uh, Hermes Trismegistus saying, uh, "As above, so below," and it has never once failed us. Everything in the heavens has meaning on Earth. You know, simple as that. And uh, back in the old days, that was a lot simpler. You know, with the sun and the moon and the five classical planets and learn them and Bob's your uncle, you know, <laughs> but uh, now, you know, Uranus came in and, and we figured out, okay, we can use that. And Neptune, oh yeah, astrology is much richer for them. Pluto, 1930, 
yeah, okay, but now suddenly the floodgates have opened. We have no idea what to do with this, but it's like we're embarrassed with riches, you know? Well, it is, and it I think it is where we are uh, as a species right now, too. As above, so below, indeed. Yeah, you know, um, I, I love how uh, you mentioned in that article, too, that Eris, uh, as the goddess of discord, is so... It's it's so appropriate to at least one of the major archetypes on the horizon yeah, right now. It's like, God, well, yeah. here we are, you know, as as a species uh, in the middle of increasingly discordant times. Yes, and exactly. uh, a lot of questioning about where we're going, what's happening with the planet, um, and how do we fix it? And uh, so. You had noted in that article that you have Eris uh, conjunct your own moon. Yes, and so you've been kind of looking at that one a little bit more than some of the others. And so what, what have you discovered about Eris, or what are your thoughts on that so far? Well, it's, uh, let me start off by saying that uh, um, whenever a planet is discovered, it's a synchronistic event. And uh, I, probably many of your, your, your listeners would be aware of this, but the, the classic illustration is, you know, the planet Uranus discovered uh, in 1781, and uh, it's a planet of individuality and freedom and overthrowing authority and thinking for ourselves and, you know, that kind of stuff, and has this wonderful synchronistic link to the American Revolution and the French Revolution. We could actually make similar arguments with the discovery of Neptune and the discovery of Pluto. The, 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 the point being that what is going on in the world when a planet is discovered seems to always have to do with the nature of the planet. It's as if we're discovering it in the world as we discover the planet. We find it in ourselves, and we find it in the sky. Now, the next step with this is it's a very human step. The, the point I just made is, is one that is commonly made by astrologers. But here's one that isn't so commonly made, but it's really important. Um, when a planet is discovered... It's, it's right on the edge of our ability to just endure thinking about it. So we find, like, all of the, all of the thoroughly decent people, let us say, who are living in, in America, when Uranus was discovered, you know, around that time, and they're, they're feeling that to, to rebel against the king of England is to rebel against the will of God, and that... It would be shameful for us to rebel against the king. I mean, this was a widespread belief. Right. Uh, obviously, it was. It didn't become the dominant one, but it was a very powerful one. And it, I can have some sympathy for it. In that state of consciousness, this this idea of rebelling against the king was scary. Neptune discovered in the middle of the of the, of the 19th century, and suddenly the idea that you know we don't need no stinking church to stand <laughs> between us and God. You know, we're still wrestling with that one. Yeah. And then Pluto in 1930, the, basically the discovery of the unconscious mind and the discovery that inside of each of us is, a, is in a sense, a, a person that we don't really know about or understand, but who will grab the steering wheel of our lives. Yeah. You know, this is an idea. It's not hard to find people who say, I don't believe that stuff. You know, see, the point is that these discoveries are always really edgy at least in the time, and after a while, maybe we get kind of used to them. So if anybody gives a comfortable interpretation of Eris, they're, they're, they're not paying attention. Right. You know, 
Like, Eris means we should all recycle our bottles, you know? <laughs> I, I mean, I think we should all recycle our bottles, but that's hardly a controversial idea anywhere outside of the White House, perhaps, at this point, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right. So, Eris is a scary planet. Mm-hmm. And, you know, discord, it has to do with competition. It has to do, uh, and, and I mean, I don't like what I'm about to say, but, you know, that's why I've made this long speech, I guess, in preparation. But but Eris has to do with competition. Mm-hmm. And uh, competition is not always a bad thing. Mm-hmm. The survival of the fittest, you know, leads to evolution. But what does it mean that, that we have an ever-expanding population on the Earth with ever-diminishing resources? We're running out of water. We're running out of arable land. We're running out of oil. You know, we're running out of you name it, basically. So who's going to get it? You know, right. who's right. going to get it? And, uh, you know, who gets to live and who, who has to die? I, I, I love answers, that, you know, in which there's peace, love, and understanding and harmony in the world, and we all take care of the weakest and all of that. I mean, those are the kind of folks I vote for. That's where my sentiments are. But when we read the handwriting on the wall, we are moving into a frighteningly competitive age, you know, with life and death stakes. You can't help but look at that. You can't yeah. help but see that at this point, that the resources are diminishing and the population is growing. And those two things are facts that we can't avoid anymore. Exactly. Yeah. So with, who will survive? You know, um, sometimes, you know, we think of, you know, America allegedly the only superpower, but, you know, we look increasingly klutzy. <laughs> and, and I... I don't mean to be pessimistic, but, you know, the purpose of every true prophet is to be proven wrong. A very wise woman told me that once. And Mm -hmm. so let me prophesy in the spirit of that, that that here's the whole story of America from the perspective of 500 years in the future. Fossil fuel, you know, there it is, you know, that we rose to being the most powerful nation on the earth because we used it very efficiently. But if we don't adapt to the reality of running out of it, you know, we fall. Yeah. With, with fossil fuel, too. When I think of who's going to survive, given global warming, given the various changes that are happening, you know, I might think of, uh, you know, a bunch of, uh, like, Quechua Indians living in the highlands of the Andes, you know, in an allegedly primitive culture. They might be far better suited to survival, you know, in their isolation and their, their kind of low-energy economy, et cetera, et cetera. You know, they might do a far better job of surviving than America does. I don't know. Yeah, and and those that are least reliant on technology. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, there's some interesting uh, planetary things coming up. For one thing, Pluto moving into Capricorn yes. um, as a big marker of some kind of change to the order. I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Could it be? Yeah. Uh, Nobody will know until we get there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I think that... Um, some of the, thing, the things that you're speaking of are also linked to some of those big shifts that are coming. Um, yes, yes. So, and those have been discussed, um, you know, on astrology boards everywhere. But mm-hmm. I think that uh, uh, Pluto moving into Capricorn seems to be uh, something to pay attention to as, oh, as we're getting close to that time. Pluto going in, uh, I mean, whenever Pluto goes into a sign, um, we reliably uh, deal with the shadow of that sign, mm-hmm. you know. We can all, always count on that, and and uh, there's a healing that potentially happens with it. Yeah. So, uh, you know, 
Pluto, uh, Pluto and Scorpio, what was that, 80, late 83, 84, it went in, stayed into the early 90s sometime when it entered Sagittarius. And, but we have the whole kind of AIDS crisis mm-hmm. in Scorpio, a lot of things, but one of them is sexuality. So suddenly the, you know, the, the dark or scary side of the sexual revolution became visible. Um, people uh, had to become a lot more frank about sexuality, mm-hmm. you know, and that's, you know, classic Pluto and Scorpio. And then Pluto went into Sagittarius, where, where it is to this day, and we've been looking at the shadow side of religion. Uh, fundamentalist uh, Islam versus fundamentalist Christianity is, you know, basically the story, yeah. you know, of these recent years, and and we're, we're just looking at the shadow. Plus, plus we have seen, uh, you know, all the, the exposure of pedophile priests and that kind of thing. That is so much the, the shadow of religion with Sagittarius pertaining to religion and belief system. Now, what is Capricorn in that light? Uh, one thing is uh, big government, and another is kind of the, the basic practical organization of a society. And, you know, what actually makes it work? Who's in charge? You know, who the authorities are that, that make it work? The whole question of the resource base is very Capricornian as well, which is, you know, we've already kind of talked about that. But I'm, I'm thinking that, that uh, Pluto in Capricorn is going to um, expose the, the shadow side of, I'm, I'm going to say big government, but I want to put that in quotation marks, because we immediately have to think, what is governing us? You know, how much, like in America, what, how much government comes from Washington and how much government comes from uh, Exxon, you know? Corporations. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. That it's getting harder and harder to tell, you know, government from corporation, and in fact, increasingly the evidence that, that you know, corporations give the orders to the government and essentially decide who's going to lead us and all of that. And so I'm thinking that uh, we're getting to a point where we're about ready to deal with that. Mm-hmm. You know, we're about ready to see that. And uh, the good news is, uh, you know, truth comes out. The bad news is uh, those who are benefiting from the, the silence probably get pretty ugly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I can definitely uh, see that association. And I hadn't thought of uh, corporations as tied into that. But it, that's really what, you know, a lot of um, what I'm hearing, you know, just plain old people talking about a lot these days is is the ever-growing presence of the corporation and how corporations are really behind so much of, of what's going on with yeah. the government uh, in our lives. Exactly. Everything. And they don't care about us. No. You know, they, <laughs> they care about profit. Right. And I mean, I sound like a Marxist or something. And, I, <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I'm not. I'm, I'm no. not. There's much about capitalism that I really like. And I'd much rather live in America than Albania, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, I, you know, what, what I'm getting at here is not... Not some kind of, you know, refried old, you know, hippie answer. What we need is a, is a revolution, you know? Right. Um, at least in the old sense, maybe we do need some kind of revolution. But, you know, what, what would we replace the existing structures with? Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. But I think it's a really good question. Yeah. And, uh, and I think that, that there will be a lot of collective focus on that. Right. Perhaps about the time that Pluto moves on into Aquarius. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, you're, you're thinking ahead. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully I'll still be around. <laughs> yeah, well, be uh, careful uh, you don't eat the things that the corporations want you to eat, and then you probably will be. 
Well, I think, you know, just um, in terms of what you see for the future in terms of, of your work, particularly in astrology, do you see yourself focusing uh, more and more on the apprenticeship programs and teaching or doing kind of an even balance of readings and teaching or what, what are kind of your interests now as you're heading uh, into these next few years? Well, I would, uh, along with the, you know, the apprenticeship program, the teaching and the personal readings, I, I, I'd like to put writing on the table too, because that, that's always been the, you know, the other major focus of my life. And, uh, what I what I would like and and what I'm what I'm working toward is um, being able to do uh, not quite so many readings. Mm-hmm. Probably teach about as much as I am teaching now, which is quite a lot. Yeah. And and uh, and then add more time for writing. I'm, I'm really working towards that. The the apprenticeship program that that you've been a part of. Um, you know, we've had. I, I've lost count, but I think about 50 meetings, each one, uh, you know, four days long. And uh, each one has been uh, recorded, at least, and many of them have been transcribed. And what I would really, really love to do is to turn those transcripts into books. That would be amazing, yeah. I'd love that, because it would be so much more sophisticated then I mean, well, again, you know, you know, you've read my books. I, I'm, yeah. I'm assuming that's probably what you do the program, and yet the the level of astrology that we do in the apprenticeship program is so much, so far beyond anything I've ever been able to write about. Just because the the nature of the books is, yeah, 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 kind of have to keep them simpler and shorter. Yeah. I mean, and my books are not not popular books. I mean, they're popular, but they're not like pop books. I've never written a sunsign book or anything like that. They're, they're serious astrology, but I would love to be able to, to produce like, uh, you know, uh, evolutionary astrology in 10 volumes in detail, you know? Oh, that would be amazing. Yeah, and I would love that. Yeah. And I have to give you the feedback too, that, um, you know, in reading, measuring the night, which is kind of a similar idea that you're talking about, I think, Mm -hmm. and taking a a workshop that you gave or a lecture and transcribing it into a book, which is uh, what you and and Jeffrey Wolf Green did with those books. Um, I, you know, having read those really felt the just the sense of being there. Of course, I've heard you speak and I've heard Jeff speak. And so I could hear your voices as I was reading the books, which Mm -hmm. is such a wonderful experience. I think it was wonderful for me, too. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. Oh, that would be, I think, a, a great direction to go and really valuable for people. And and as you say, uh, the books that you've already written, you know, are serious astrology uh, in terms of, I, you know, I work with students and uh, I always um, give them kind of a bibliography of, you know, here's the things that you should read, suggested reading, and your books are on there. And the feedback that I get is that, you know, for them in their learning process that your books, uh, particularly The Inner Sky and The Changing Sky, are so helpful in terms of getting them their bearings in astrology. Oh, great. That's good to hear. Yeah. Actually, I hear that a lot, and, and I never get tired of hearing it. <laughs> good. <laughs> I was hoping you weren't tired of hearing it. Oh, so. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Uh, you know, yeah. that's, uh, especially The Inner Sky, it's like my, my first baby, <laughs> my yeah, first yeah. born. Yeah, absolutely. And so, and I keep getting that feedback continually too from my students. So, 
uh, just passing that on again. And um, yeah, I, w I would love to see the, the AP conferences in some kind of a written and published format. Would be Me wonderful. too. You know, in the AP, we, we keep everything, uh, as, as you well know, confidential because yes. we're working with our individual charts. And, and so the, the actual transcripts and tapes and such will ne never be made public. But if I, if I were to rework all that, I, I could, uh, you know, eliminate the personal references or, or get explicit permissions, you know, where that's appropriate and, you know, edit out the, the references to murders committed and bank robbed. <laughs> <laughs> all those things that might end, end up on the Internet. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I know. Well, yeah, and, and I think uh, definitely I, I see how it could be reworked and... Um, I'm assuming you could pull in somebody that you could trust to <laughs> help you rework those things. Oh yeah, but, Jody would probably help out with yeah, it. You know, yeah. You know, well, she edited a the editor. right. She did the the first uh, the measuring the night um, volumes, didn't she? She yeah, edited yeah. She things. she and I actually together edited those. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, you know, we uh, we got a cabin in the mountains and just kind of disappeared up there for you know on several occasions for several days and. And you know, labored, labored through the stuff. Well, it was I, hard work. It's uh, you know, it's funny. Uh, you would think that that doing a uh, doing a, a a book that was basically a transcript would be a whole lot easier than writing a book. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not. It, it's uh, it it's a little bit easier. The book appears a little bit faster. That that's true. But it's not not easy because the spoken English mm -hmm. and written English are so utterly different. I, I'm pretty good with English and speaking in paragraphs and stuff like that. You know, yeah. my transcripts are generally pretty intelligible because I, I, I have Mercury and Capricorn in the third house, <laughs> and so my mind is naturally pretty orderly and when it comes to language. But even me, you know, I, I read through a transcript, and, and there's hums and hums and, oh, yeah, I start one sentence and finish a different one and pull it all together. And, and uh, you know, you got to fix all that if it's going to be in print. Right, and there's things you'll you'll always have to clarify with the spoken versus the written. So yeah, and it takes time, but exactly. uh, but yeah, I will. We will all eagerly await the outcome of that. So <laughs> hey, great. Well, thank you, thank you. Well, Steve, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I really appreciate you uh, coming on and and answering my questions, and um, I just really wish you well. Thank you so much. It's been a delight, Dina. For more information about Stephen's apprenticeship program or his services, you can check out the link at my site in the show notes. If you've been enjoying this podcast, you'll also want to check out evolutionsofastrology.com. There you can subscribe to my monthly newsletter and find out more about my classes and astrology readings. I'm available to do readings via phone or in person, and all readings include a CD recording of the session. To contact me, you can reach me through the website at www.evolutionsofastrology.com.